second. Okay, so this is the, the finale basically of our Tour de Tanya. This is class 10. We've been through the entire um, book now and we're going to try and do a, a sequel, a summary of all 53 chapters in under an hour. And just to give you some kind of idea about this book is I, I worked it out last night from all the sheer that I've given in this, the average sheer that I give to get through the whole book takes about 120 hours. So we're going to try and do it in 120th of the time. So we'll leave out a few bits, but um, we'll see. We'll see what we can do. Okay, I wanted to just say- Can we get a coffee break? <laughs> no. Okay. Um, and this, I never mentioned this, but I've made this class as a Ilyunishmas, as a, how do you say that, as a, 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 a merit for the Nishamas of my father's parents, who's with us, uh, Yehuda ben Yitzhak and Esther ben Fivish, uh, who are looking down on us. This should be good for them. Um, okay, so before we begin, there's one that we need to define two words immediately, which is toiv and ra, which gets translated generally as good and evil. Um, but we translate them in Tanya, toiv we translate as selfless, and ra we translate as selfish. The concept of having a sense of self, the more we have a sense of self, the more selfhood we experience, that could be called evil, even though we wouldn't use that word. It's not, it doesn't mean demonic kind of malevolent evil. We just mean, um, we just mean self-consciousness. That's what we call evil in this book or Ra. And Toiv means selfless, means uh, transparency and, and, and selfless, the, the, the feeling of, of unity with everything else. Shalom Gavriel. Um, the book is based on a on a verse in Devarim in Deuteronomy that says, uh, that this thing is very close to you in your mouth and in your heart to do. And I think it's only been after having spent a couple of thousand hours learning this book that I finally kind of understand the connection of this of this verse. This is very close to you. That's from Moshe. No way. Wow. Um, that, um, that this thing is very close to you. And the word ma'oid in Sefer Tanya is a very, very holy word that I don't think we're going to talk about. But anyway, the, is, the, the book is based on the assumption or the, not the assumption, the, um, pre, not preposition, the, um, not pre, how do you say, pre, not pre, to make something standard before we start, the um, not prerequisite, um, the, the supposition, is that right? The supposition that this thing is very close to you in your mouth and in your heart to do. What the Rebbe is basically requesting from us is behavioral perfection. He explains that we are capable of, even if we're not perfect internally, Every Jew, and really every human, but we're just talking about Jews right now, every Jew is capable of behavioral perfection. Um, okay, so the, the, the Sefer basically splits cleanly into two parts. We have chapter 1 to 25, and then chapter 26 to 53. Chapter 1 to 26 you, to, to 25, so you could really call like the outline. 
you've the, the Rebbe explains all the ingredients, all the players, all the parts, how it fits together and what we're here to do. From 26 to 53, he goes into, like, I, just, I, I, I summarized it as advice, application and enrichment. So really from chapters one to 25, you can understand what it means to be Jewish. From 26 to 53, there's a lot more cool stuff to find out, but, um, but we know what to do up until chapter 25. Okay, so it starts like this. We're already seven minutes behind schedule, but we'll catch up as well Hashem. The foundation of the entire Tanya is based on the premise that a Jew has two souls. Okay, a soul is considered a, well, really a soul is something that knows and feels and behaves. Really, you could even say more, it wants and it knows and it feels and it behaves. It is a entire being, a personality. And the Jew is in possession of two of them. So what's the Jew? Well, that's a good question. The Jew is really this, the, the human is the space in which those two beings coexist. The part that makes us Jewish is the second soul that is called the godly soul that sometimes in, in, in like secular parts we call uh, the neshama. Okay, but the Jew, to say the Jew is a neshama is not really correct. The Jew is the being that is trying to choose his neshama so we are the space that houses the natural soul and the godly soul now the natural soul is a um is a created being that structure we'll talk about in a minute but the structure of it is one of independence meaning that each of its 10 parts work independently of each other. And that is typical of a created being. A created being has an ego. Sorry, one second. So a created being having an ego feels a sense of separation from everything else. And the reason why that is, is because the very structure of that human mortal soul is based on separation, fragmentation, dislocation, however you want to describe it, okay? Not the case for the godly soul. In the godly soul, the structure, again, that we'll explain in a moment, is interdependent and unified. So these are two very important definitions of what we have mundane and holy, okay? Mundane, as we said before, good, means selfless and and evil means self-full but we could also say that good means interdependent and unified and ra evil or um, mundane would mean um, fragmented and independent okay so the very structure of the human soul is is fragmented and the very structure of the godly soul is um, interdependent and unified and that gives rise to the two opposite outlooks in the world the natural soul sees the world as a place of fragmentation 
um, and is threatened constantly by everything that's going on. It sees things as either a way to help it or a way to hinder it or irrelevant to it. Whereas the godly soul's outlook is one of complete um, hiscolorless. How is it hiscolorless? Encompassing. Complete completion and 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 I can't think of a better word. Um, What's the word again? Inclusive. Inclusive. Thank you. Inclusive. Yeah. I have someone sitting with me helping me out. Yeah, a, a very inclusive outlook on life. The 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 human soul, because it's so aware of its mortality and that it will it will not be at some point, is driven exclusively by this will to live. We could go deeper and explain what that means, but that that's enough for us right now. Everything that you do on a human level is really to further your existence and to solidify your existence and to eradicate anything that poses a threat to your existence. The godly soul, on the other hand, death is irrelevant to it because it's godly and eternal and is completely unfazed and it's it's just not relevant to it, the concept of death. So it has no, no fear of death and is driven by a desire to serve its creator um, and that's it. So that's the dichotomy going on in the in the in the uh, in the Jew. The mechanics of the soul, basically, to say it very very quickly, is the soul is made of the soul, so to speak, has a head and a body. Okay, obviously it's not physical. The head is composed of three parts: hochmabina and das, and the body. We'll just say for for ease is composed of two parts um which is or one part which is 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 emotions but would be love and fear or love and hate or love and awe whatever word you want to put into it the way the mind works on the most simple simple level is hochma is the the flash of inspiration the entire idea in germ form bina is taking that kind of spiritual energy like that, that seed and giving it length and depth and breadth, thinking through the idea and extrapolation. And thus would be the integration of the idea where a person, so to speak, sits on the idea for enough time where he begins to identify with the idea and take it personally. Once we take something personally, now that gives birth to emotions because the two primary emotions, let's just say love and fear, are a movement towards, that's love, and a repulsion away, that's fear. So basically love and fear is just the idea of moving towards something or moving away from something. That's the most simple understanding of love. Once you have identified with a, with a concept or with some kind of idea, that will give birth to emotions because before I feel it identified and connected to the idea, the idea is largely irrelevant to me. Now, when we have identified with an idea and we are now taking it personally and we now have emotions towards that idea, emotions flow downwards. Emotions desire to be expressed through behavior. There's three kinds of behavior, thought, speech and action, believe it or not thought is considered a behavior you are in control of what you think about you're not in control of what what is what spits up into your mind but you are in control of what you entertain 
That's the point of thought. So thought is an activity. Speech is an activity and action is an activity. As such, these are the expression of the love and the fear of the soul. So when you love something or when you fear something or hate it or in all of it, whatever it is, it, it um, uh, how do you say it? It um, causes, not causes, um, it, it animates behavior. And that's why behavior is called clothing. According to Kabbalah and Hasidus, behavior is called clothing. Thought, speech, and action is called clothing. Why? There's many, many amazing reasons, but just for one of them is that you express yourself through what you wear. You will know that a king is a king by one, one way, is what he's wearing. And you know that a beach bum is a beach bum because of what he's wearing, okay? And how he has his hair, maybe, and the tattoos as well. But anyway, but, um, but well, that's, that's amazing, isn't it, tattoos? Sorry. Um, so, so, um, so emotions express themselves through behavior, thought, speech, and action. And that gives us um, a, a little entrance into what mitzvahs are. Okay, mitzvahs are actions. And mitzvahs are ways that we express our love and our fear for Hashem. Our fear for Hashem is expressed by not doing the negative mitzvahs. And our love for Hashem is expressed by doing the positive mitzvahs. Um, without the mitzvahs, we would not have any way of expressing our emotions towards God. The mitzvahs are vessels, so to speak. The action of the mitzvahs are vessels that allow us to express our godly emotions. Imagine, imagine um, being married to somebody who doesn't need anything, who has no needs whatsoever. It would be incredibly frustrating where you have a tremendous love for someone and there's nothing you can do for them. So that's what the mitzvahs are. The mitzvahs allow us an opportunity to actually do th something for Hashem. So our love and fear of the godly soul becomes enclosed in mitzvahs. Now, learning Torah is something different. You know the old adage, you are what you eat. So you could really modify that to say your body is what you eat. You know what you are? You are what you learn. That's what you are. So when you learn Torah, it's food, so to speak, for the soul. And you ingest it just like when you understand something, your mind surrounds it. The, it's, like, it's called grasping, grasping an idea, meaning you, you surround the idea. That means the idea becomes internal to you. And as such, the idea or what you've learned, the concept becomes, so to speak, of you. Just for example, the concept of two times two equals four. You don't need to think about that, but you know that your life, you you run your life according to, there's a lot of things you run your life to, but one of the things that you run your life to, one of the concepts that is in your life always is the concept of two times two equals four. That has become part of you, and that's what Torah is. When we learn Torah, which is the, the will and the wisdom of the creator, 
we actually, so to speak, it's like in a sense eating and, and we bring into ourselves the creator and we become, we become one with the creator, the creator becomes one with us. We become godly. That's how we become godly is by learning Torah. Okay, we mentioned the concept of Klippus Noiga and Gimel Klippus Timaeus. When we spoke about good, we said good is selfless, which can also be described as transparent, like glass. That would also be called holy, kadosh. Evil, then, would be the opposite of that. It would be the concept of opacity, where there's a concept of self meaning that the light isn't able to pass through. But there's two basic levels to this kind of concealment, this, this, um, this, this husk, this shell. Uh, one would be called opaque. That would be the lowest level where no light can shine through whatsoever. That's utter concealment. And then another level would be called translucent, which is considered, uh, you know, like milky glass where... Uh, like frosted glass where light does pass through but is impeded that would be there's a sense of self but not an ultimate sense of self so the things in this world that are connected or derive their life force their godly life force through way of what's called the clepus noiga the the intermediary shell that makes up the world of the permissible that makes up the world of kosher food kosher relationships etc that aren't a mitzvah but are available to be taken by the jew and elevated in his divine service whereas the things that are trans uh, sorry that are opaque which means they are completely covered over um, they make up the world of the permissible. That would be trafe food, that would be trafe relationships, etc. Things that the Jew has to avoid. Okay, we can we can raise up the things that we need to avoid in a, a few ways. Would be um, avoiding it completely. Would be um, in a case of where we would might, we would die if we didn't partake in some kind of food um, or um, what else? Um, um, or by a non-Jew. Uh, having eaten eaten the sandwich and helping us helping us in some way with that energy and with us dedicated to serving the creator that would also give raise that would also help rise up this lowest level okay um the rebbe introduced in chapter nine we've just been through eight chapters now chapter nine the rebbe explains how this dichotomy takes place inside the Jew between the human soul and the godly soul. The fight of the Jew is between, it's not between human and animal. The fight of the Jew is between human and godly, unless he has taken on what's called a tevashene, a second nature, um, where it could be that he would now be fighting to just be human, but a factory installed Jew, who hasn't been polluted in any way um, with his with his the factory installed settings? His struggle is between human and godly, not between animal and human. And the Rebbe explains that this is comparable to what's called two kings warring over a small city. What's the small city? The small city is the body. Okay, and the two the two kings, the the godly soul and the animal soul 
are both struggling for control over the body. It's like driving a car and you've got two people kind of like jostling with each other for the steering wheel. They, there's no, there's no, uh, what's the word? There's no um, compromise in this, in this, uh, in this battle. Uh, either the godly soul is in control of the body, which means it's him thinking, it's him speaking, and it's him doing. Should we say it's her thinking, her speaking, or her doing? Um, or the animal soul takes control of the body, and then it would be him thinking, him speaking, and him doing. And that's the that's the struggle of the Jew. The struggle of the regular Jew is how do you think, speak, and act, not how do you feel. How you feel is in the domain of the tzaddik. This is chapter eleven, uh, chapter ten. The tzaddik is described as a being who his internal world is completely aligned with God. There is no struggle anymore. There's no dichotomy of human and godly. There's just the godly. Okay, he is called the tzaddik, and there's no struggle there. So obviously, if his inner world is completely aligned and, um, what's the word? Um, If his inner world is harmonious, in that there's no, yeah, so there's no struggle. His his emotions are completely for God. Then obviously, his behavior is going to be perfect. Then there's the Russia, okay? The Russia we call the sinner or the evil one, whatever. Those are those are very bad translations. The definition of a Russia is basically someone who, in the best case scenario, every now and again could be very, very, uh, um, very, uh, very infrequently, um, and also with transgressions that are very minor every now and again will commit a sin and a vera, okay? But every now and again, it's not talking about like demonic, malevolent kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of evil. It's just talking about somebody who doesn't have absolute behavioral control. His inner world is, is um, in conflict. He has selfish tendencies and he has selfless tendencies. Um, and his outer world, his garments, his behavior, thoughts, speech, and action is also not perfect, meaning that every now and again, in the best case scenario, he will do, say, or think something selfish. Um, and in the very worst case scenario, he could be doing, thinking, saying, and thinking selfish things basically all the time, um, but will have uh, thoughts of regret. Um, and then comes the the star of the show um, is the Benoini. This is who the book is written for. In fact, this book is also called Safer Her Benoini, meaning the middle guy, the intermediate guy. Um, this is who we're striving to be. This is the guy who experiences an inner conflict. He has both selfless and selfish impulses, but he acts perfectly. His thought, speech, and action is always selfless. It's always outward towards Hashem. It is always involved in Torah and mitzvahs and has no connection whatsoever to Avera's and uh, to sins. And this is um, predicated on the foundation of the entire book. This is, in my opinion, is the foundation of the entire book. Four words. 
The mind, the brain, um, is shoylet. Rules, governs. Yeah, thank you. The mind rules over the heart. Now, what does that mean? And I think I, I think everyone will agree with this. I think it's 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 um, self-evident. A person struggling to not smoke cigarettes. Yeah, I've I've been involved in this. And I know how difficult it is to quit smoking. Yeah. So the guy hasn't smoked for, say, a month. And, you know, he's been clean for a month. And now he's had a, you know, he had a row with his wife and he lost some business and he's in a really bad way. And he he's going for the packet and he doesn't want to smoke the cigarette. And he knows that if he smokes a cigarette, he's going to fall back into the whole thing. And but he's like, I, I, I'm going out my head. And he's about to start, he's about to light this. In fact, his friend's sitting there next to him saying, Shmuel, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And he's like, and he's got the lighter and someone pops out from behind the bush and says, Diamond, if you don't smoke that cigarette, I'll give you $3,000. The lighter goes away, the cigarette goes onto the floor. Thank you very much. And I have behavioral control. What happened? Everyone knows that the mind rules over the heart. The problem is that when the mind doesn't have enough ammunition and the heart is screaming so loud, then the mind doesn't work over the heart. But really always the mind is in control of the heart. So if you have the right information, if you're armed with the right information, for example, another, another thing would be, if a doctor popped out of the uh, popped out from behind the bush and said to me, "Shmuel, um, we just got your tests back, and if you smoke one more cigarette, it's basically ninety nine percent that you're going to die." Again, you'll see the cigarette fall on the floor. That's what th this is the concept that the Tanya is totally predicated on: is that your mind rules over your heart, and to know that is just, I mean. It's just the most liberating, fantastic thought you can ever have, unless you're actually ill. And there could be, you know, people are ill, but we can assume that we're not ill. But unless you're actually mentally damaged, your mind rules over your heart. And that's basically what the Rebbe says. And he explains that through that, you're going to have um you're going to have the ability to behave correctly. But then he goes on and he also says there's another concept of the mind ruling over the heart. Number one, the mind rules over the heart means that you are always, you always have behavioral control, number one. Number two is you can choose to think about what you want to think about. And what you think about will actually influence your emotions. So the more I think about, you know, Donald Trump's, I don't know what he really did wrong, but let's just say the more I think about his, what's it called, not his impeachment, like how he, how he wild up all the murderers and stuff and, you know, whatever they did. And the more I think about that, the more incensed I become about it and the more emotions I will have towards, my, my hatred towards him will, will build. Let's just say, I just keep watching CNN. Yeah, my hatred to Trump will build and build. Yeah. But what about if I don't watch CNN and I just start, you know, watching the Discovery Channel, 
not like lions killing stuff, but just looking how beautiful the world is and being really thinking about how beautiful the world is, um, then I might actually inspire some, some noble, healthy emotions in myself. That's another concept of that the mind was over the heart, meaning we are in control of what we think about, or maybe in this generation we could say we are in control of what we click on. And what we click on is going to have a massive impact, impact on what we feel. So if we're watching like MMA bloodbath fights and all kinds of, you know, horrible stuff on YouTube, whatever, then we are going to give birth to those kind of violent and unproductive, destructive emotions. Whereas if we're listening to inspired classes by holy people um, talking about selfless stuff, then it could be that our heart will be moved towards selflessness and inspired in that direction. So the mind is in control of the heart. The Rebbe explains is basically two things. Number one, perfect behavioral control is always within, within reach. And number two, a long-term plan, which is really chapter 16 and 17, the long-term plan is that you are responsible for your emotions. But the mind needs ammunition to rule. I don't know where that came from. weird. There's something weird in the computer. That was weird. Anyway, someone's checking us. But anyway, that that um that we are we are responsible for thinking, pondering, and meditating on the right subjects that are going to uh inspire us in an emotionally healthy um and noble way. Um, the Rebbe then goes on and explains what it means self-sacrifice. Chapters 18 to 25 create a, um, a very um, standalone kind of structure. He explains that Jewish self-sacrifice is something different to what we understand. Self-sacrifice doesn't mean giving up your life for your ideology because that's not really giving up your life just your life and your ideology have become enmeshed with each other so giving up your body for your ideology um, is not such a big deal human um, jewish self-sacrifice is true self-sacrifice which doesn't make any sense we haven't got time to go into this completely right now uh, but it's a fascinating subject and it really demands a lot of attention um, but but the, the, the point that the Rebbe basically makes is that every Jew would give up his life rather than bow to a cross. And if a Jew wouldn't do that, then he's very, very sick. His Jewish soul has become very sick. A healthy Jew who doesn't mean a, a religious Jew, but a Jew who hasn't been um, oh, not overly like um, very much negatively affected it's mo it basically the Rebbe says that the, on on the whole any jew any single jew no matter how um secular dislocated he is from his religion will give up his life rather than that rather than commit idolatry and then he goes on and through some very deep i mean it's very inspiring um philosophy explains how in truth any sin Every avera that we do is actually uh, tantamount to idolatry. Idolatry truly is, I mean, this is the, the whole foundation of Tanya is 
the choice is always between me and God. There's no other option. There's nothing else to choose between. Every single thing we do, speak or think in this world is either for God or for me. There's no other option. And the Rebbe explains that when it's for you, that at the time of when you're doing it for yourself, there is an utter disconnection from God. And therefore, just like you would give up your life rather than bow to the cross, if you're an, in uh, a a um, uh, inter- a person with integrity, how do you say that? An inter- integral person. If you're a person so- with integrity. Yeah, that's <laughs> it, isn't it? There's another way. So if you're a person with integrity, just like you would give up your life rather than bow to the cross, so too you will be able to overcome this temptation right now. He's basically giving you some ammunition to use in the concept of the heart rules, the the mind rules over the heart. Just like the doctor popping out saying, if you smoke that cigarette, you're going to die. You can have now the, the thought in your mind that if you do this act, that is antithetical to the Torah, that is a sin, is an avera, that's a transgression, you are becoming completely dislocated from the creator, and therefore you should be able to have the energy to not do it. Okay, he goes on now, chapters 26 to 34, again, another self-contained unit, and now the Rebbe is discussing the main obstacles to divine service. By getting up, we just got up to chapter 25, which basically means the Rev has outlined his entire philosophy of what, of what it means to be Jewish. Now he's going to get into details and specific advice uh, regarding the kinds of things that stop us. The most poisonous, um, the most toxic poison to serving our creator is, Gavriel, you can tell me this one. Uh, DC. What? DC. Hello? What did you ask for? Say it again. Say the question again. What is the most toxic poison in, in uh, the most destructive thing that can stop us from serving Hashem? Ego. No, that's how we that that's the ego. Way. If it wasn't for ego, we wouldn't be able to serve that we wouldn't be able to serve Hashem. The thing that stops us from serving Hashem in the most profound way is the pressure. The ultimate ingredient to service of Hashem is Simcha. We need Simcha to be able to serve Hashem. If you don't have Simcha, you can't serve Hashem. Depression and anxiety are two sides of the same coin. Okay. when we talk about depression, we're also talking about anxiety. Depression is self-projected negativity into the past. That makes me depressed. And anxiety is self. Selfish, um, negative thoughts into the future. Okay, it's the projection of self into the future is anxiety and the projection of self into the past in a negative sense, causes depression. What is depression and what is simcha? Depression is a blockage. It's the concept of blockage. The heart is blocked, okay? Simcha is 
the concept of free flowing, um, how do you say it? Free flowing. Yeah. The heart is open. Simcha is also called psicha salayd. The heart is open. Okay, so we need flowing emotions to be able to serve Hashem. So the Rebbe explains that there's three things that can give us depression, three kinds of thoughts. One is what I've done. One is, sorry, the first one is what's happening to me. The second one is what I've done. And the third one is who I am. This covers, these three, these three categories cover everything that can make you feel bad. Okay, what's happening to me? Oi, my life is terrible. Um, I, my kids are bad. My, I don't feel well. I got no money, etc. yeah? Um, and the Rebbe to that says, you should know that all of this is bringing you closer to him. Yes, it hurts. Um, but without getting into the details of how he explains it, he basically says that this too is for the good. And if you meditate on that, it should help you get over the depression. It's not going to help you get over the pain. The pain will always be there. The question is if you're going to have to suffer. The suffering is to do with the self getting projected into it. But if you can actually get to a place of simcha, that's not going to mitigate the pain, but it will mitigate the suffering. That's what he says. Then he says, what about what you've done? You can't just say this is for the good when you've done bad things, because that isn't for the good. You shouldn't have done those bad things. So he says, if you start feeling bad about bad stuff that you've done, then you should know if it just like comes to you out of nowhere, um, then it's just to try and get you more depressed and pull you deeper into selfishness. Um, the correct way of doing it is to take a specific time and meditate, not actually on what you've done, but to whom you've done it against. So just to very quickly, again, the, everything I'm saying, we could literally talk about for hours, but just to put it into human relationships, that if somebody did something horrible to his wife, he could turn around and say, oi, I'm so bad, I can't believe what I did. That wouldn't be much of a that wouldn't that wouldn't be, be, really be building the relationship much as opposed to if he turned around and said, "Oi, I can't believe that she had to endure this, that she had to endure this kind of behavior." That is called tuba. That's real tuba. That's huh? focusing on the other. Exactly. If I'm saying, "Oi, I'm so bad," that's just called that's like selfish self help. Okay. Whereas if I'm saying I can't believe that she had to endure this, that is called chuva, and that is the remerging with my wife. And then you can just exchange wife for God, and you've got the same idea. Um, the five stages of the heart, very quickly, are. This is it's such a bizarre. It's such a how say bizarre, not disgrace. <laughs> no, it's disgrace. Not the right word. It's just it's so um. No, it's so um um obscure. Um, no way, it's so uncomfortable. It's so it's so disrespectful to this book to try and do what I'm doing right now. I please like beg forgiveness from you, Roshan Zalman, Maladi. But um whatever. Don't, don't apologize, just do chuva. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing it for good purposes. I'm just like we're like giving over each what everything I'm saying literally could we could speak about for an hour, literally, and I'm saying it in like 30 seconds. Um, but anyway, so the five stages of the heart. The first stage is called Timtumale, when the heart is completely clogged and a person's not feeling anything. 
The second stage is called Schwerselade, where you've broken your sense of self-identity. When your sense of self has been broken and you've lost your sense of identity, that's called Schwerselade. And that is fertile ground to move into the next stage, which is called Mererselade, which is called, oh, sorry, the last stage is called brokenheartedness. Mererselade is, uh, is translated as bitterheartedness. Bitterheartedness could be described as the inner experience of enough this that this is this is it finished i have to stop doing this i have to get over this i'm yeah that's the bitterness of heart and that can motivate and compel us into what we call which is simcha which is the openness of heart and that will eventually bring us to the level of what's called which means utter self-transcendence where means that the the, the leivav becomes the adjective and the goodness becomes the noun. So all the other stages is, you know, uh, my heart and then an adjective. The final stage is the goodness is the noun and my heart is the adjective. That needs to be thought about a lot, but that's a mind-blowing concept. Um, yeah, and if we are able to disidentify with our body, and to, yes, identify with our godly soul. That, the Rebbe says in the iconic chapter, Lamad Base, which means heart. Lamad Base is lave heart. Chapter 32 is the uh, surefire recipe to love every Jew. Kozman, that you are all the time, that you are connected to your body and to your ego, Everybody else and all of creation is experienced as a separate and antagonistic um, entity. It might be able to help me, therefore I will bring it to me, or if it will hinder me, I'll push it away from me. Uh, but everything is separate and it only has relevance towards me. Once I've identified with my godly soul, which is by definition unified, as we said at the beginning, now that means that I will love every Jew because we're all one. Okay, again, we can speak without burning time. Okay, and then the Rebbe introduces in Peret in chapter 33, the purpose of creation, which is called Dir Betach meaning a dwelling place in the lowest realms, which means Hashem's desire is to enter into this lowly physical world. He, there's, there's endless spiritual worlds that go higher and higher and more and more refined and more and more spiritual. They were all created for the sole purpose of Hashem expressing himself and feeling at home in this world. How does someone feel at home in, in, in how does someone feel at home somewhere? Is that your hosts are nullified to you. What's a better way of saying that? Not nullified, that's not a good word. Your hosts are receptive to you. And your hosts are putting your needs above their own needs. That's how you feel comfortable somewhere. And that's what Hashem has created, this whole vast cosmic plan that we call creation, so that you and me can welcome him into our behavior. That's called a Torah and mitzvahs. That is the purpose of creation the 13.8 billion years or whatever they say and the 90 billion light years of space and the 
squillions and squillions and squillions of tons of matter and everything and everything that's going on is just so that you and me can do Torah and mitzvahs so that Hashem can enter into his world. That's it. How do we do that? Two primary things. Tzedakah, because that transforms all of our working, all of the energy and time that we spent earning money. You give a little bit of that money and it transforms all of that time into holiness. And he says, not just learning Torah, but be, being koivea eating the Torah. means fixing set times to learn. You hear the godless of that? Fixing set times to learn means it's not just I learn when I've got a minute, because that would say like I've got a life. And when I can, I kind of fit Hashem in. Setting times to learn and not breaking it for anything except for in the most difficult circumstances means not that I have a life and I'm fitting God in. It means God is real and I'm fitting my life around him. That's the concept of fixing times to learn. Again, it's the concept of making Hashem the, 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 the center and making me the making me the um, the the moving part, so to speak. So well, shouldn't it say shouldn't it say Kavia eat him to work? Shouldn't we just have set times to work and all the other time be learning? Okay. Um, it says be Kavia eat him the Torah. It doesn't say that. Your work should be um should be fitted. You should fit your work in, in on the side. I mean that could be you know, ten hours a day. But it should still be to you in your mind. Secondly, Why did you know to turn off the tzedakah. Are you saying the fact that it's fixed? The fact that it's fixed means that that's the ikra of your day. Exactly, exactly, and everything else uh, is moving around it. Uh, okay. I heard. I heard one. Okay, got it. Yeah. Let's keep going. Let's go. Um, a dwelling place below action. So, um, we. I mean, we spoke about this basically. I'm going to miss out the candle analogy to get to the end. Um, but the um, there's another thing just very interesting. Doing mitzvahs is always for Hashem, as long as we're doing it with the right intentions. Um, whereas learning Torah is for us. But listen to this, Gabriel, you're like this. Learning Torah in your mind is for you. But speaking it out, that's for Hashem. Because speaking it out, the lips moving and the air moving, et cetera, et cetera, is bringing Hashem into the world of action. Even though it's speech, speech is a kind of quasi-action because our mouth moves and we articulate with the whatever it is. So speaking the words of Torah is also another way of bringing Hashem into this world. The Rebbe then goes on after explaining the importance of the physical mitzvahs. The Rebbe then goes on to not let you get the wrong impression to think that the intentions behind the mitzvahs aren't important. And he basically explains that there can be six different, um, what's the word? Six different um, um, motivations behind the mitzvahs. Okay, the highest motivation behind the mitzvahs would be a complete selflessness where Hashem himself is just moving through you. Okay, that would be compared to the world of Atsilas. Then we have intelligent emotions, which we spoke about before. The moyach being sholet alalev, the mind being in control of the heart, thinking about the right subjects and meditating on the right subjects that give us the right emotions. That's a very high level of motivation. 
that goes with the world of Bria. Then there's the natural godly emotions that are just um, that are just not is it indigenous? Does that make sense to have indigenous emotions? Native, native. The native emotions of the heart. Um, that's also quite a high level. Um, when you just do mitzvahs because you have this native love for God, those those mitzvahs go to the level of Yitzirah. If you're doing it by rote because your dad said or because your Rebbe said or because just this is what I do, um, then the mitzvahs don't go anywhere. They don't go up, but they don't become treif in any way. They don't get taken by any kind of selfless selfishness. They're still selfless in a sense, but just because you're doing it by rote, those mitzvahs stay in the world of a seer. And then there's doing it for an ulterior motive, which would mean, for example, the Rebbe gives the example of to be a Talmud Hochem. A person who's learning to be a Talmud Hochem means there's a, a level of self here. It's about me. It's not forbidden. So that Torah gets taken into the Klippus Neuger. The energy gets taken into the translucent shell. Um, and it can be released quite easily. And then there's another level that the Rebbe doesn't even talk about, which is the canter, which means to upset someone um, or to annoy or to, 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 to annoy someone. That would be from the completely dark clippers. That would be the, the energy from the Torah, ending up going into the completely concealed clipper. And you would not, that, that, that's better that you shouldn't be learning in that case. A person shouldn't be learning if he's learning to try and hurt someone else, then he should not pick up the text. Whereas if he's learning just to aggrandize himself, then the Rebbe says, okay, it's not very good, but just keep doing it. And eventually you will, you will see the light and you'll stop being so self-involved. Um, the Rebbe then goes on for the next 10 chapters from chapter 41 to 50 and goes deep into the different kinds of love and fear. Uh, we haven't got any time to do this because I, we really need to finish on the last section. Um, but basically, um, our entire relationship with Hashem is based on awe. In fact, all relationships are primarily based on awe, we could say in regards to Hashem, or respect in regards to another human being. If there isn't respect, which translates as self-containment, there is no relationship. If I can't not do what you don't want me to do, I'm not in a relationship with you. Even if I'm doing things that you like me to do for you, if I can't hold myself back from doing things that you don't like me to do for, to you, then there's no real relationship. So the Rebbe basically um, emphasizes this point that first things first is you need year shemaim. You need fear of God. You need a level of self-containment. Once you've got that level of self-containment, now we can get involved in the different loves but first things first is self-containment. Um, the lower level of fear is basically the concept that I am here and I am being watched by God. That's the lowest level of fear called Yotata, where Hashem is a reality in my life. But it's my life and he's a reality in my life. The higher level of fear would be where I've moved my perspective, not from there's me and God's watching me, but there's God and somehow I'm also here. And that's called a fear of embarrassment because <laughs> like, what am I doing here? That doesn't make any sense. They, again, these ideas are, are very, uh, need a lot of explanation. And then, right. and then, oh, sorry, how can you put yourself on mute, please? Sorry, I did it, no offense. 
Um, and then the Rebbe gets into the different loves. I'm going to miss out the loves, but there's, there is one, two, three, four. It's more, 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 just one thing. It's Yiris right? Yiris Habosius is the same thing as Yiris. Fear of embarrassment. It's that I want to not exist. It's not that there's Hashem and me. It's that there's Hashem and I don't want to be here because I'm embarrassed of being existing as That's separate it. from myself. It, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm not absolutely sure about that. I'm not, I'm not, we have to, we have to talk about because chapter 50 is a kind of love, which is that I don't want to exist. I'm not sure. We'll talk, we can discuss that another time. But anyway, basically the Rebbe explains um, three kinds of fear four kinds of love, two kinds of ways of accessing love, and then another kind of love that's different in kind to all the other loves, okay? What we know is that the more sophisticated your experience of something is, the more you appreciate the nuances of that thing. The Rebbe was a gourmet on divine love, mamash. He was an absolute expert on divine love, and therefore he was able to, um, how do you say it? Not sense, taste the different nuances. How would you say that? Discern. He was able to discern different nuances of love. And it's really fascinating, really amazing. Anyway, now to finish off. Is that what does it mean that Hashem rests? What does it mean, Hashras Hashchina, very apropos for this time of year? What does it mean that Hashem rests in the, in the temple? Hashem's everywhere, no? We say that from, you know, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, up, up, down, down, left, right, all around. So if Hashem is everywhere, what does it mean he rests in the Holy of Holies, in the Kodesh Kadoshim, in the base of Mikdash? And basically, to cut a very, very, very long and complex story short, <laughs> Hashem, so to speak, comes into this world on, on the grander level. He is everywhere, but he enters into this world, into the Kodesh Kadoshim. That's what the Kodesh Kadoshim is. And he spreads out from the Kodesh Kadoshim into the rest of the into the rest of the world. Just like your soul enters into your brain. Your brain is called the Kodesh Kadoshim, even though your soul fills your whole body. It rests primarily in your brain and it expresses itself from your brain into all the different aspects of your being your vision your your smell your action your speech etc but it it comes into your brain as a kind of unified whole and then expresses itself through all its different functions and abilities um, from your brain into the rest of your body that's what the Kodesh Kadoshim was the Kodesh Kadoshim was like the sun the sun is the is the um is the the source the source of all the energy, thank you. And from the sun, all energy enters into the world, okay? Without getting involved in like thermonuclear stuff and all that kind of stuff. But on a simple level, the sun is involved in energizing all of the, all of life is energized by the sun. I eat animals, animals eat the plants, the plants eat sunlight, and that's the news. 
So okay. you're saying, are you you're saying then that until the temple is rebuilt, Hashem doesn't enter into our world in the same way. Well, in the same way, but I'll finish off the thought, and 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 that that's the per, that exactly the point. By the first temple, Hashem, so to speak, bypassed all of the higher worlds and was revealed in this. We're going to go over a few minutes. I I, I can't I, I can't I, we have to. I'm sorry. Anyway, so in the first temple, which was miraculous, Hashem bypassed. Um, without getting into the details, many of the higher worlds, and he was revealed in a miraculous way in this world. And therefore, Gavriel in the in the Luchos, in the in the in the um in tablets. the tablets, there was um there was two two miracles. The the, the mem, they were engraved, yeah. The mem and the summer are are completely enclosed. So that channel of stone levitated in the middle. That was number one, yeah? Number two, and part of that is that the, the engraving went all the way through the entire tablets, yeah? They were actually square, the tablets. So the engraving went all the way through and there were two miracles. Number one, the circle of stone in the summer and in the mem that are closed letters levitated. And number two, you could read the inscriptions on both sides of the tablet. It made sense from both sides. So it sounds like two kind of like weird, like just random miracles. But Gavriel, listen to this. They're not random miracles. They were the, they were the um, dissolution. They were the not paying attention to. They were the manifestation. They were what, Dad? Manifestation. No, they, they were the they were the manifestation of the fact that all of the laws of this world have been suspended. All of the laws of the world being described in two ways, gravity and cause and effect. Gravity was being, was being disregarded by the channel of stone levitating in between the men and the summer. And cause and effect was being suspended by the fact that you could that they were carved all the way through and they read the same on both sides. They were both readable from both sides. So in the first temple, it was a, it was a period of, of miracles. And that was symbolized by the by 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 what happened in the basin meter in the in the Kodesh Kadoshim in the in the tablets. The second base of Migdash, it said that the Yidden who saw the first base of Migdash, which was 70 years earlier, they cried when they saw the second base of Migdash built. Because it was so unmiraculous compared to the first base of Migdash that they they were they cried. Why? Because now the Shina wasn't bypassing all the higher worlds, it was actually entering into the of the lowest world, which is which is the, the, the mind of the lowest world. I'm not going to get into the details. What happened after the destruction of the second temple? The Kodesh Gadoshim, the place where Hashem enters this world, is in what's called the Dalad Amas of Halacha. When the Jew performs, performs Halacha, is fulfills and is Makayim the mitzvahs that is now how Hashem enters into this world that is the Kodesh Kadoshim in this time 
is our actions, our mind and our and our actions is how Hashem enters into this world. That's considered the Kodesh Kedoshim. And the Rebbe ends up with an analogy, which is which is really answers up all the questions, which is as follows: that the analogy of a candle. There's the wick and the oil and the flame. The wick is symbolizes your nefesh of Bahamas which really means your negative energy, your selfful energy. That's the wick. The oil is the mitzvahs, is the action of the mitzvahs. And the flame is God's presence. Now, this always annoyed me because the Rebbe said that it's through the, the transformation of the wick into fire that the flame is able to stay on the candle. But it always, okay, it's fine, but I don't know. But it's, but it's, but I looked it up and it's actually that the wick is actually consumed very, very slowly. But the wick, of course, the oil is consumed, but the wick is also consumed. And given enough time, if you keep pouring oil, it's got, there's some kind of, it's like 15 gallons to eight inches of wick or something like that. If you keep pouring in oil, the wick will eventually disappear. That is the, that is the conversion of your animal soul into godliness. And this is the, this is the finale of the entire Tanya, is that we are here not to replace the darkness with light, when you walk into a room and you turn on a light switch, yeah, what happens? It's not like when you turn on the air conditioning. When you turn on the air conditioning, what happens is the cold air pushes out the, the hot air. OK, it's not the same when you turn on a light. When you turn on a light, it's not that the light kind of pushes away the darkness. The light instantaneously, the darkness just instantaneously gives gives way to the light but there's a there's a deeper a deeper concept and this is the transformation of darkness into light and this is the, the finale of the entire tanya where he says what is the purpose of evil what is the purpose of self in this world which is evil is that it is the fuel your, our sense of self is the fuel that burns, that allows God's presence to be in this world. Not that evil is an impediment and something that we have to overcome and, and banish and give way to the good. No. It's the evil that is the fuel that allows Hashem to come into this world. That is the purpose of evil. And the Rebbe finishes off with the words, Hashem Elokecha Eish Ochlohu. He is an all-consuming fire. That is the final message of the Tanya, that what you thought is your biggest problem, your sense of self, is actually... The only, it's the fuel that we have that allows Hashem to come into this world. That's called the transformation of darkness into light. Wait, why is, is it the, the fuel? 
Why is it the fuel? It's the wick. It's the wick that the the the. Yourself, your sense of self is the wick that is slowly, slowly consumed, which is what allows God's light to stay connected. I didn't bring for everybody. I Dafka, your sense of self that is what allows Hashem to enter into this world. And if you didn't have a sense of self, Hashem wouldn't be able to come into this world because there. Why? Why is that? Why? Because you. Why? There, There wouldn't be any world. If there was no sense of self, there wouldn't be a world for him to come into. The concept of world, Helen, is self. That's what world is. Um, while I was davening, I overheard someone. Well, Shkaya, thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Okay. Bye, Tom. Thank you for your work you, you're in Chicago still? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My WhatsApp will be working. Yeah. Guys, we arrive tomorrow night, Thursday night. Good luck to Sam. Have a safe trip.